Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Donald Trump won last week's presidential election by garnering the most votes in the Electoral College. The winner needed 270 electoral votes. At last count, Trump has 290, and it's... A lot of people are thinking that it will be over 300 by the time he is done. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by more than a million once all the votes are counted. It's the fifth time in the nation's history and second time in 16 years that the candidate with the most votes from the American people did not win the election. It has renewed calls from across the country to abolish what detractors call an adequated system, the Electoral College. Joining us on the program today, two distinguished uh, political scientist and historians. Dr. Alan Gelzo is the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era and Director of the Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College. Dr. Gelzo, nice talking to you again. Good to be back again, Scott. Dr. Robert Spiels is Associate Professor of Political Science at Penn State Erie. Dr. Spiel, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Scott. This is one of these programs where we'd like to hear from you. Your thoughts on the Electoral College versus a popular vote, or there are other proposals out there. Now, we probably won't get to your phone calls for a few minutes, so do be patient if you call in. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Both of you wrote op-eds this week uh, that were published. Dr. Spiel, yours was in Time Magazine and Dr. Gelzo, you were published in the Washington Post. And I want to start with your first line of that op-ed. And it says, quote, there is hardly anything in the Constitution harder to explain or easier to understand than the Electoral College. What did you mean by that? Well, first of all, I said misunderstand. Oh, you did? <laughs> that's, that's right. Not only is the Electoral College hard to explain, but it is easy to misunderstand why it's there. And there really there's four basic reasons why the Electoral College is in place. First of all, it underscores that what we live under is a federal system. We only got the Constitution because the Constitutional Convention persuaded the states to enter into a federation arrangement. Now, we had an earlier federation arrangement. That was the Articles of Confederation, but it was a spectacular failure but not so much a failure that the states were willing to give everything up. So we adopted a new federal structure. But it's still a federation. And without that federation approach, we would really have become a series of tiny, balkanized little republics. And everything else in the Constitution is structured around the federation idea. You know, we divide powers between the states and the federal government. Uh, we have a Senate. Uh, the states ratify the Constitution by state conventions. Uh, states have to approve amendments. Uh, the Constitution can only be terminated by an action of the states in a national convention. So federalism is in the bones of our nation. And I'd be concerned that we can't start removing bones without the whole body suffering problems. All right, we'll talk more about that, some of the specifics in just a moment. But I do want to talk a little bit about the history. The Electoral College was basically a compromise when the Constitution was devised in 1787. In what way? Well, it was a compromise because the two major arguments in the Constitutional Convention were let's elect a president broadly and directly by the people, or let's elect the president by having Congress elect the president, which had been the process under the Articles of Confederation. And the arguments that went back and forth on, on this looked like this. If Congress elects the president, then the president is going to be entirely beholden to Congress 
and the legislative branch will usurp the primary position in running the government. Well, that was not what they wanted. On the other hand, and this is the interesting part, the people who argued for a direct popular vote, like James Wilson of Pennsylvania, made that argument only to have it uh, uh, confuted by someone like George Mason from Virginia, who said, if you have a direct popular election, then what you're going to produce is a president who believes that he or she is acting as a mouthpiece or tribune for the people, and that's going to produce a dictator who is going to be at war with the legislative branch, and you'll very soon find the result to be uh, a kind of uh, dictatorship, um, the fetus of monarchy, as Edmund Randolph put it in the Constitutional Convention. So the conclusion was, well, let's, let's split between these two. And the Electoral College is a way of balancing the notion that the people do vote for the president, but at the same time the states are voting for a president, and we wind up then with a president who is not beholden either to one or the other, and who is not a captive of one or the other. That way you come right back to the notion of separation of powers and checks and balances. Dr. Spiel, I'm going to bring you into this conversation in just a moment, but I do want to just you know, talk a little bit more about the history. One of the things that has been pointed to a lot in the last week is when you're talking about that compromise is that part of it uh, was that the southern states wanted their slaves to be counted as part of the population because if they weren't, the northern states that had more population would dominate. You downplay that as a, as a claim for why they reached this compromise. Yes, and the reason is that when the d- discussion takes place in the Constitutional Convention about the Electoral College, the question of slavery never enters into it. And there's a reason for that, and that is because slavery in 1790 is not just a Southern thing. Slavery is legal in every state in the Union in uh, 1787 when the Constitutional Convention meets, except for Massachusetts and Vermont. So if the argument is being put forward while well, the southern states were doing this because the, they, would, they would benefit from having slaves, uh, actually the truth is that if, almost every state in the Union would have had that same benefit. It's not just a southern slaveholder thing. Including Pennsylvania. Including Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And the irony of this is if you do the numbers, if you look at the population and ask, well, what, what influence does this have? Look at the two largest slaveholding states in the Union, which are New York in the north, Virginia in the south. If you subtract the slave population of New York entirely, and then subtract the slave population of Virginia entirely, uh, you really don't get much of a change in terms of its representation or the electoral vote. Virginia still gets more representatives. And the same thing's true for the next year. So this argument about uh, the uh, Electoral College being some kind of bastion of slavery really falls to the ground. It never really entered into the discussion. And I think that the people who put forth that argument are sort of the grassy knoll historians of the Constitution who see uh, a slave conspiracy uh, behind um, you know, even the motion to adjourn at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Dr. Spiel, you write that uh, one of the things that the founders didn't anticipate in 1787 was political parties. And that was a big change, wasn't it? Yes, uh, very much so. I mean, I, I, the original idea when the Electoral College was created was, was likely that the electors would act as independent actors and use their best judgment to choose a president, with the assumption being they would choose George Washington first. 
but as political parties began to evolve, then the Electoral College quickly changed into a system where people uh, voted based on party loyalty. And what was that big change? I mean, how did that change the original intent? Well, the original intent, if electors were going to use their independent judgment to choose a president, then, you know, obviously it can be anyone. And, and, you, and the assumption was, is across the original 13 states and later states, they might vote for several different people. And uh, I believe a lot of historians have written about the Constitutional Convention that the uh, framers of the Constitution actually believed that so many candidates would receive electoral votes that the election would actually get thrown into the House of Representatives which in the original Constitution said uh, the House would choose among the top five vote-getters in the Electoral College. So Congre- uh, the Constitutional Convention actually did leave a role for Congress uh, in the original Constitution to choose a president. It was almost as if the Electoral College would narrow down the choices to five, and then the U.S. House of Representatives would choose the actual president. The, the two-party system changes all that, and we no longer have a system where no one wins over a majority of the electoral vote. Now, we're going to talk mostly about today, but uh, Dr. Galzo, what Dr. Spio just uh, talked about is something that you addressed with, uh, you know, a popular vote. If we did use a popular vote, that there could be multiple, maybe more than a dozen uh, c- sometimes candidates out there that voters would be choosing between. Well, I think a good example of that uh, would be the 1860 election. Uh, which gives us Abraham Lincoln. Uh, In the 1860 election, um, Lincoln wins 39% of the popular vote. Uh, That's about 1.8 million votes. And the rest of the uh, electorate is divided among three other candidates. Uh, Two of them are Democrats, because the Democratic Party split, uh, John Breckinridge and Stephen Douglas. And then there's a third party, or in this case, strictly speaking, a fourth party, uh, John Bell and the Constitutional Union Party. If you add up the other three parties, in fact, don't even add the other three. Just add the two Democrats. Assume the Democratic Party doesn't have this big internal split that it suffers in 1860. Then the popular vote is about 2.4 million for the Democrats. And that would mean that in that case, you would have Abraham Lincoln elected as, as a seriously deficient popular vote candidate, but with a majority still of the Electoral College, whereas Douglas and Breckinridge, you know, they have the, uh, a whopping majority, the Democrats would have a whopping majority in the popular vote, but still come up way short in terms of the electoral vote. Now, if you wipe out the electoral vote completely, then what you do is you encourage more and more splits, more and more third parties. You know, third parties see that, well, under the Electoral College, we're really not going to get much of a piece of the action. But if they see that gradually, the case becomes that third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties, each are out there grabbing for a piece of the vote, then you diminish the majority enjoyed by the frontrunner, and you call into question, constantly call into question, the legitimacy of whoever the frontrunner was. And that could have been the case in 1860 if the Democrats had held together. And that would be the case if we didn't have the Electoral College, which tends to function in the opposite direction, to confer legitimacy on people who have won that Electoral College vote. All right, well, then that addresses something that uh, Dr. Spiel wrote about in his op-ed, and that is mandates. Dr. Spiel, you wrote that it is a myth that the winner of the Electoral College you know, an overwhelming winner of the Electoral College has a mandate 
if the popular vote is closer. Talk about that, because that's something related to just what Dr. Galzo talked about. Yeah, I mean, presidents often like to claim a mandate when they win the Electoral College. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, has been claiming a mandate for Donald Trump due to his Electoral College majority this year. But if, if more voters actually voted for the opposite candidate, or if it was really close, then obviously you know half the voters of this country do not feel there's a mandate for whatever the policies are. And uh, some of the uh, presidents in the past who won due to the Electoral College and lost in the popular vote quickly discovered they did not have a mandate and had what many historians would would consider weaker failed presidencies, such as uh, John Quincy Adams in the 1820s or uh, Rutherford Hayes in the 1870s or Benjamin Harrison uh, a decade later. Uh, so I, I, you know, it's kind of it does provide that artificial perception that a president has a mandate, but. I think a lot of voters question that when they didn't even vote for that candidate in the first place. You point out that in 1980, Ronald Reagan won 51 percent of the popular vote, but won 91 percent of the electoral vote against uh, Jimmy Carter and took that as a mandate and used that uh, as as being a powerful president, having a mandate to change and, and really to get his budget plan through. So what are you saying about that, using that example? I guess I'm just saying, I mean, yes, Ronald Reagan did successfully use that, and he, he got his support from particularly a lot of Southern Democrats at the time, which still existed, conservative Southern Democrats, to get his policies through. But there was a lot of resentment, and we forget that in the population against Ronald Reagan. There was a lot of opposition in the population, at least until he ran for re-election in 1984. I guess what I'm saying is that idea of an electoral college landslide creates an artificial perception in, in government leaders and in members of Congress so that they pass policies that the public may not actually want and the, and the majority of the public didn't actually vote for. And in the case of 1980, Ronald Reagan did win 51 percent of the vote, which is a majority, uh, but that does mean 49 percent did not support him or his programs. And in a system like the United States, where minority uh, parties often have a lot of influence in the government, that's something that should be kept in mind when people are making decisions. Dr. Gelser, what about that? Well, the Constitution doesn't talk about mandates. Uh, presidents aren't elected to have mandates. They can claim them, and opinion writers can talk about mandates, but the Electoral College simply confers legitimacy on a candidate. It doesn't confer a mandate. It doesn't withdraw a mandate. If we're judging the legitimacy of an election in terms of whether somebody has a mandate of some sort, then every time the popular perception of a president changes, and the mandate changes with it, then I suppose we should have another election, which, I mean, of course, that's absurd. So the question of a mandate, I mean, anybody can claim a mandate, but the Electoral College does not confer mandates. Nothing in the Constitution confers mandates. So people can claim that, but I don't know that's really either here or there when we're talking about the significance or the importance of the Electoral College. All right, we're going to talk more about, uh, again, we're, I see we're getting a lot of phone calls, but we're going to talk about uh, some more specifics with the Electoral College and popular vote in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
We're talking about the Electoral College after uh, last week's election where Donald Trump won the Electoral College votes and was elected president of the United States, but uh, Hillary Clinton got about a million more popular votes. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Spiel, Associate Professor of Political Science at Penn State Erie, and Dr. Alan Gelzo. He's the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era and Director of the Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College. So let's take some phone calls. Let's go to Jim. Hello, Jim. You're on the air. Hello, Scott. Hi. Good morning to you, and good morning to your panel. At the risk of sounding redundant, I'm glad to be on the program. I listen every day. Well, thank you. Okay, so uh, a comment. Uh, The Electoral College is an affirmative action program to protect rural voters who no longer need to be protected. It's put in the Constitution, in part, to preserve slavery, and it continues to deny full citizenship to many people. Voters in populous states don't have the same rights as those in the rural ones. And combined with gerrymandering, it has led to a distrust in Congress and the presidency. And my question would be, uh, will the nation fall apart if we get rid of it? Jim, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Dr. Spiel, how about I start with you? Uh, well, the direct answer to the, the caller's question is no, the nation will not fall apart if we get rid of it. Uh, I, I also want to address something Dr. Gelza was mentioning earlier about a, a split you know, with several parties running. Uh, I think actually a lot of Americans would welcome the participation of more political parties in the political system. I mean, a lot of Americans did not like either of the major party choices this year. And if there was a concern about someone winning with only 40 percent of the nationwide vote, the United States could move to a runoff system like France and many Latin American countries have, where you have a second round of balloting uh, to, to choose a majority president. But as far as the idea that the, that the Electoral College was created originally to protect rural interests and, and, or as, sort, as affirmative action for rural interests, I mean, it is true to an extent that rural states get a little bit of a boost in the Electoral College because the number of electors is based on number of members of Congress and, and States with low population get those two centers and therefore two electoral votes. And, and I have noticed in the past week there's a lot of concern being expressed among Trump supporters uh, that that if we don't have an electoral college, that somehow rural votes will get less attention or be less important. But those same people don't express the same concern about the 39 million voters of California who uh, who actually can might be underrepresented in the electoral college. And I'm not sure why there's this infatuation or concern with rural voters and not the same concern with urban voters. Now, before Dr. Gelzo, you you weigh in on this, something I'd like to point out to you is that, uh, you know, and those who support keeping the system as it is, maybe with a few tweaks, but keeping the system as it is, point out that California, New York, the most populous states, if we went by a popular vote, that whoever won California would be, you know, have a major, major advantage. Yeah, well, 39 million people live there. I mean, I mean, they have the same advantage in the Electoral College. I mean, Cal- California has uh, uh, 55 electoral votes, and New York has 29. Uh, Florida has 29. Texas now, I believe, has either 38 or 36. I mean, the big states have a, dispro- have a, a huge number of votes under the current Electoral College system just because they have a lot of people. And that really doesn't change very much, uh, but whether you have an electoral college or a direct popular vote. I mean, California is going to outvote North Dakota no matter what system we use. But we use a system where we're more concerned 
that North Dakota gets an extra boost of the electoral vote rather than be concerned about the voters of New York City or Los Angeles as if somehow their vote should be inferior to a North Dakota vote. Mm-hmm. Dr. Galzo? Well, I mean, you can run that argument uh, both ways. Uh, you can say, well, this is uh, unfair to urban voters who get a lesser vote than people in North Dakota. But if you live in North Dakota, then you can just as easily say, and with probably just as much passion, oh, uh, if we went to a different system, uh, people here in North Dakota would get the short end of the stick, nobody would be listening to us, uh, no candidates would come. Of course, the truth is that it's really somewhere in between, because the candidates don't go to North Dakota anyway, as it is. The argument that the Electoral College has legitimacy because it forces candidates to appeal to a wider range of voters, that might be a side benefit, but it certainly wasn't what was in view in the minds of the founders. Because, I mean, the, the truth is, that, and I think that, uh, um, that this, is, this is evident in a number of ways, yeah, you expand through the Electoral College. You force candidates to get out and speak to more states, but you wind up only speaking to 10 or 12 states. Still, I would guess that speaking to 10 and 12 states is better than just speaking to two, California and New York. I think the fundamental thing, though, is that this, is, this was really not an issue in the creation of the Electoral College because in 1787, 99% of the country was rural anyway. And the real concern was that, in fact, the country was so rural that communicate. I mean, this is this is a system. Uh, this is a time in which the technology of communication means that it takes five weeks to get from New York City to New Orleans. Uh, there was concern here that if you don't have an electoral college, if you don't break this election system down into stages, then it's it's going to become unmanageable, and the whole system won't work. So this idea that somehow we're appealing to the to rural states over uh, uh, urban urbanized states really wasn't on the screen of the founders, and that's and you can argue it as I say from either end, depending on whose ox is getting gored. But it's not the fundamental reason why the electoral college is in place. Let's take some more phone calls and emails. Jim is in Noah. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Jim. Uh, I. I wanted to elaborate on a few points that were already made. Uh, yeah, the, the, there is some concern about having a, uh, a, a president who doesn't have a majority of the popular vote uh, if, you, if you eliminate the Electoral College. But there's an easy way to fix that, as was mentioned. You, go to, you have a national nonpartisan primary, somewhat similar to what they have done in Louisiana, and, uh, and then you uh, get down to the uh, top two, and then those two run off. Uh, so that's the way to fix that. Uh, in late October... We went out to California, and then we spent a day in Nevada, and it, and it kind of illustrates uh, the defects in the current system. We were in California, and we got off the plane, and we were just amazed. There's no posters. There's no nothing. There's nothing on, the, on TV about the presidential election. There is a lot about the propositions they have out there, but nothing about the presidential election. Why is that? It's because California is a deep blue state, and uh, the current system really sort of disenfranchises people who live in states like California or, or maybe states like Montana that are deep blue or deep red. Uh, th- all of that says, so you know, I do think that the uh, Electoral College ought to be changed. There is a much, much bigger problem in our political system, and that is gerrymandering. Gerrymandering does a tremendous amount to uh, disenfranchise people, and uh, that is the bigger issue, in my opinion, than the Electoral College. Thanks. Hey, hey Jim, thank you very much for your 
your call. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I was going to talk about uh, how maybe the system could be tweaked. And, you know, we'll talk about the difficulty in doing that. But uh, one of the ways that uh, has been suggested is what two states do now, and that is Maine and Nebraska, where electors or, you know, the the presidential candidates are voted on. They get the majority of their electoral votes from the congressional districts. Whoever wins a congressional district, that presidential candidate gets that electoral vote. And as opposed to the 48 other states like Pennsylvania, where winner take all. And, you know, I I think that I, I think, Dr. Spiel, you wrote about this, that if that be the case, if we would go to a system like that, ger- gerrymandering, uh, you know, it's a problem now. I think a lot of people agree where the the, the majority party comes up with, uh, you know, the congressional districts, that it would become even a bigger problem. What about that? Yes, and I and I agree with the last caller that uh, gerrymandering is a big problem in our political system. And I do feel that if we switched, uh, if all states switched to the Maine and the Nebraska system of awarding electors by congressional district, uh, the intensity of creating gerrymandered districts to favor one party over the other would become even more intense than it already is. Uh, several states have switched, and the caller may be aware of this. Several states, including California, have switched to a more nonpartisan or bipartisan system of creating uh, U.S. House districts. Pennsylvania, of course, as we know, has not. Uh, and Pennsylvania's uh, districts have been gerrymandered by both parties, whoever was in control of the state legislature for, for decades. If we did move to a system where we could eliminate gerrymandering to the extent possible uh, when drawing districts by a bipartisan or nonpartisan commission, I think the Maine and Nebraska system, while not ideal, would likely be better than we are now, uh, or what better than we have now, in that the electoral vote would be awarded more proportionally rather than just win or take all if you win a, a, a state by 1% or less. But we would have to deal with the gerrymandering issue first, and, and unless there were these commissions created to create districts, I think that situation would get worse with a nationwide adoption of the Maine and Nebraska system. Dr. Galzo, you agree with that? Oh, I think so. I think that all of that uh, moving... Uh, the matter of the Electoral College that way to within the states would simply transfer the problem and would, in fact, put a lot more pressure to gerrymander even more radically uh, than we have uh, as it is now. So I think that we don't escape the problem. We merely put it uh, at a different uh, level in the process of electing a president. Hmm. Here's an email says uh, the Electoral College was uh, com- that uh, it was devised for prevention of tyranny, a manipulated majority, and non-existing candidates campaigning in middle America. But with the modernization, progress, and sophistication of mass media, social media, and simply the increase in population since the Constitution was written, not to mention a multitude of differing philosophies in these subsequent years, it would seem to me that the old ideas upholding the Electoral College are obsolete. And if there was a worry, I would think campaign regulations and controls could be instituted. Dr. Gelzer, what about that? That is a great theory. And like a lot of great theories, it resembles a plank 10 feet long across a chasm 10 feet wide. Looks great, but don't try to walk on it. Uh, If we are going to move to strictly a popular vote, because we can do it now, because the communications technology allows us to, then why not at that point get rid of the House of Representatives? Why have a Congress? Let's put every national issue, every bill, every act up to the same national referendum. And if we did that, then you can imagine what a cumbersome mess we would be dealing with. And 
the results of it would probably not be terribly pretty. The Founding Fathers understood this, and that was why they wrote the Constitution the way they did. Not just the Electoral College, but the whole system that you see pervading the Constitution is one in which decision-making is broken down into stages where everything gets slowed down. And that frustrates people because it seems inefficient. Well, they weren't really interested all that much in the Constitutional Convention in efficiency. What they were doing was interest, being interested in preserving liberty. And you can have demagogues who can whip up a majority at a given moment on a particular issue. But then afterwards you think, well, what, we, what were we thinking when we did that? That was exactly what the founders were trying to avoid. They wanted things to slow down. In a sense, they wanted gridlock. I thought gridlock was a good idea. Because if the government, of the central government, is busy occupied with gridlock, that meant it was too busy with its own internal problems to worry about molesting the per private affairs of its citizens. So, yeah, it's, it's more inefficient to do it the way we do it, not only by voting the way we do for a president, but in fact the whole way we conduct our government. It's, it's terribly inefficient. But the inefficiency is a deliberate strategy. Now, when you talk about, uh, you know, why have states, you know, why have boundaries, uh, you know, why have a Congress? I mean, that sounds a, a little extreme because if you look at other parts of how government works, how what we do, I mean, individual states have, I mean, state governments obviously do something. We're not just a uh, you know, something that the federal government dictates what we do. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know about that. That's, that's true. I'm simply saying, and I'm believe me, I'm not advocating Oh, that. I know, I know. No, I'm simply saying if you take the logic of that. Now, the curious thing is, if you look at other federal republics, other federal, other democracies with a federal structure, take Germany, for instance, German voting is a colossal nightmare. At least I'm speaking as an observer of it. Because when Germans vote, every vote that you cast actually is two ballots. You, you cast a direct ballot for a member of the Bundestag. Then you also cast a proportional ballot through your party. But that's not the end of it, because then you have to elect a federal president who is, maddeningly enough, elected by a national convention. And then you have the real effective head of state, which is the chancellor. But the chancellor is not elected by the people. The chancellor is elected because of whoever happens to be the head of the party with the majority in the Bundestag. So, in fact, our system, even with the Electoral College, is much more direct than most other democracies uh, that are functioning today. Uh, the Germans are one example. Even the United Kingdom, even Canada, uh, we're not talking about direct voting there either. So in, in our system, ironically, we're actually much more direct. Dr. Spiel, your thoughts on a popular vote? Well, I, I mean, to address some issues discussed in the last few minutes, and, and including from uh, the email that you got, uh, yeah, I mean, states were states obviously were important in the original drafting of the Constitution. However, we have to remember that a century ago, uh, we had a constitutional amendment to change the way the U.S. Senate was chosen. Uh, instead of being chosen by state legislatures, which was the original plan, uh, we now direct the elect senators, because a century ago, uh, people in Congress and in the state governments decided that that was a fairer way of choosing members of the United States Senate. However, we still do have that United States Senate. Uh, we didn't have to abolish it just to change the way it was elected. 
and I think it's very possible to do the same thing uh, with the Electoral College. I could get into a discussion of, of parliamentary systems of government, which uh, many political scientists would argue are a more effective way to govern people, but that seems like a, uh, going off on a, a bit of a tangent, So, I, and, and Dr. Gelzo already discussed that issue pretty well, uh, so I'll uh, turn it back to you. But what about popular vote? Now, do you yeah. support a popular vote over the electoral system? Yeah, I mean, if it were up to me, I would support a popular vote uh, similar to what a caller said earlier, a system like Louisiana has, and, and, and California and Washington State now have systems similar to this as well, uh, to elect their governors and to elect uh, members to Congress and so forth. It's a system used in France and in much of Latin America where you have an election where all candidates from all parties run together, and if someone gets over 50%, they win, and if no one gets over 50%, then you have a second round uh, where the top two will run against each other and voters can choose between the top two candidates. That, that gives voters a chance to express their true feelings if they might prefer a libertarian candidate or a Green Party candidate or any other candidate, but at the same time and make sure that whoever is elected president actually does have a majority support from the voters. Now, what you're referring to often is called a runoff, and right. that's one of the. I actually have a question here from a listener. Said, what, what do you think about a runoff? I think you just touched on that, Dr. Gelzo. What do you think about a runoff? Well, we actually have a provision for a runoff, and that is that anyone who, I mean, if you have an election where uh, two candidates uh, fail, either of them fail to achieve that majority in the electoral college, uh, the runoff then goes into the House of Representatives. So there, there really already is a runoff provision. You might want to quarrel with uh, the nature of it, but it's, it's already there, actually. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guests today are Dr. Alan Gelzo. He's the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era and Director of the Civil War Era Studies at Gettysburg College, and Dr. Robert Spiel, Associate Professor of Political Science at Penn State Erie. We're talking about the Electoral College. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I have an email here from James and wanted to get, there's been so much attention on Alexander Hamilton. Uh, would the guest comment on Alexander Hamilton's writings in Federalist 68 regarding the Electoral College as a safeguard against the ascension of someone fundamentally unfit by character and temperament to the office of the presidency? It would seem that much of the conversation this morning has focused on populist themes. Based on Hamilton's writings, it would appear that the Electoral College was also meant to be part of a larger system of checks and balances that would protect the nation against populist passions or demagoguery. And you have touched on this, but Dr. Gelzo, what do you say to James? Well, I think that is certainly one of the things that was in the mind of the founders, because their concern, and it was based on practical experience, was that decision-making, which takes place in a democracy, if it takes place too quickly, is liable to have disastrous consequences for that democracy. An example uh, comes from Pennsylvania in 1776, under its constitution. The 1776 constitution in Pennsylvania was a reaction to the way Pennsylvania had been governed up to that point, which was a proprietorship. I mean, literally, Pennsylvania is the private property of the Penn family right up until the revolution. Come the revolution, and we head in a 180-degree direction. We have a unicameral legislature, so there's no Senate of any sort in Pennsylvania. There's no governor. There's an executive committee. 
and everything is really done by by popular vote. And what is the result? We get some really bizarre legislation because you have such a strong component of uh, Scots-Irish Presbyterians in the middle part of the Commonwealth. Then their representation in the Pennsylvania legislature led to legislation about um, Sabbath uh, observance, uh, about religious tests for people holding public office, the kinds of things that when you took a step or two back from them and scratched your head, you thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, did we really want to do that? But whoops, it's too late, we've already passed it. Examples like that, examples like Rhode Island and its economic, and I I have to say really (laughs) eccentric approach to uh, public economy, Uh, states like that and their behavior was really what pushes the Constitutional Convention to say, let's create a system where we think twice before we put demagogues in place, before we have knee-jerk responses to immediate situations. Democracy is good, but democracy also has to be safeguarded because democracy, like any other form of government, can go awry. And it was those safeguards that were, that were in view. And I think that Hamilton is trying to define the uh, Electoral College uh, as uh, one of the ways in which we safeguard ourselves from uh, an excess, from the, uh, the, the problems that not only democracy, but any form of government can generate. Dr. Spio, I want to read an email to you from uh, Robert, one of our listeners. It says, the Electoral College was designed to protect our nation from a popularly elected demagogue, but right. it seems this year that it will have the exact opposite, overturn the will of the voters and install a demagogue in the Oval Office. Now, obviously, that was not a Trump voter who, uh, who, who wrote that. But, you know, those who didn't vote for Donald Trump, and uh, there were, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton had a million more voters, would say that the system didn't work this time. Right. Yeah, and, and to continue, uh, both with what the, uh, the the person who sent the email said and also with Dr. Gelzo's comments, we have to remember, I mean, the, the, the person who wrote the email was correct that uh, Alexander Hamilton and Federalist Paper Number 68 was concerned about demagogues, and and the and the main intent of the framers when they created the Electoral College was because, as I said earlier in the hour, they wanted people to exercise independent judgment when choosing a president because they didn't trust voters. They they called it the passions of the people that people would get too passionate and be under the sway of demagogues, and they wanted to avoid that. But we have to remember, since the 1820s, the Electoral College has not worked that way. The electors do not act as independent actors. They're basically just party loyalists who were chosen for their party loyalty and then uh, cast their vote uh, as a group for whoever won the state on a winner-take-all format. Uh, I mean, the the electors to the Electoral College these days in most states are chosen at state party conventions or by state party leaders, and they, again, are chosen for their longtime party loyalty. Now, this year, I've been discussing this with students because... Uh, the electors uh, were originally intended to exercise independent judgment. If they wanted to do so this year, they could. Uh, and, and many, some states have a law saying that you have to uh, vote for the candidate you're pledged to, but most constitutional scholars don't think those laws are enforceable because the Electoral College is in the U.S. Constitution. And I've mentioned to students, theoretically, this is not what's going to happen, but theoretically some of the Republican-pledged electors could, for instance, vote for Paul Ryan for president in the Electoral College. And if Paul, if Paul Ryan got enough electoral votes from pledged Republican electors to deny Donald Trump that 270 majority, the election then would go to the House of Representatives, who would then have to choose between Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Paul Ryan uh, for who would be the best president. And we could have an interesting result. So 
that kind of idea is theoretically possible, but, but again, almost all electors vote as their pledge because they're chosen for their party loyalty. And that also is something that's been making the rounds on social media by Clinton supporters as a way to keep Donald Trump out of the White House. But realistically, we know that that's probably not going to happen. Right. Let's go to... Add too, by the way, that there were a number of people in 1788 and 89 who thought that the best example of a demagogue at work in American politics um, was Alexander. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go to Tom in Harrisburg. Tom, you're on the air. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by at least a million uh, votes, and Donald Trump had a resounding victory in the electoral vote because the campaign was geared to win electoral votes. If there were no electoral college and we had a popular vote campaign, it would have been totally different. Trump would have campaigned in California. Clinton would have campaigned in Texas. To say that you know, if there were no electoral college, that you know, the recent popular vote is what we would have had, it's ridiculous. All right. Tom, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Dr. Spiel, the point he makes is a good one that, uh, I mean, uh, these candidates campaign to get electoral votes. Yeah, and Uh, and the caller is correct. I mean, we don't know what the popular vote result would have been if if the candidates had known before the election that it was going to be a popular vote election instead of uh, an electoral vote election. But I'd also like to flip that a little bit and make another point, which is defenders of the Electoral College, and, and, and uh, Dr. Gelzo addressed this a little bit earlier, defenders of the Electoral College often claim that the Electoral College causes candidates to campaign a lot in rural states, which would otherwise get ignored. And as Dr. Gelzo already mentioned, no one campaigns in North Dakota, either in the current system or in the popular vote system. And I would argue, and I, I looked up statistics for this campaign, uh, 87% of campaign visits this year by Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Mike Pence, and Tip Kaine Eighty-seven percent of their campaign visits in the two months prior to the election were in only 12 states. They only basically bothered to campaign in 12 battleground states. They never set foot at all in 27 states, including North Dakota and South Dakota and Wyoming and Montana and Alaska. They ignored all those states. And what the caller is just pointing out is if we had a national popular vote election, Donald Trump would have gone to California and would have gone to Texas and would have gone to New York. And my suspicion is that they would have gone to population centers in 30 to 40 states instead of only 12 states. So while the caller is correct that if we had a national popular vote in place, uh, Donald Trump perhaps could have won the national popular vote. On the other hand, we would have actually had the national campaign that advocates of the Electoral College often claim is caused by the Electoral College, but is actually not. And I hope that logic uh, was clear. Mm-hmm. All right, let's uh, take another phone call from Kevin in Lidditz. Kevin, you're on the air. Hello, Kevin. Well, I guess Kevin's no longer there because I think you answered his question. Let's go to Matt in Lancaster. Matt, you're on the air. Yeah, you know, I, was, I was wondering if anyone uh, has done the math to give people a clear idea of how outsized the uh, the power uh, in the electoral system the more rural states are. When I'm looking at a state like Wyoming that's got just under 600,000 population and three electoral votes, and then Pennsylvania that has uh, almost 13 million and 20 million electoral votes. 20, um, 20. Wyoming, yeah. well, rather I should say Pennsylvania is diluted. We're about, we've got about a third the power per person um, as a citizen in Wyoming. Well, I think those two are a good comparison because they won't both went red. I'm not trying to rig it, rejigger some sort of uh, alternate history fantasy scenario. No, I know. I understand your point. I understand your point. Red. Yeah. 
You're, you're basically saying that Wyoming voters. People don't know how much. Yeah. Thank you very much. But I mean, basically what he's saying is that Wyoming voters had more impact than those in Pennsylvania. Dr. Gelzo? Exactly the same argument you could use against the United States Senate. If you want to dismantle on that basis the Electoral College, then we need to take the next step, and that is dismantle the United States Senate. And if that is also the case, then we want to dismantle a lot of the other aspects of federalism. Again, what I'm coming back to is that fundamentally the argument here is it's not about, well, does the Electoral College foster um, uh, candidates going into rural places? Uh, well, no, and, and nobody in the Electoral College ever made that argument. Um, I, I don't know where, in fact, that argument originated, but uh, uh, that it's certainly true that that is at least a flawed argument to say the best. Although I will say this, even though the candidates only went to those 12 states, that would probably be better than just the candidates going to L.A., San Francisco, and Manhattan, which is quite possibly the result if we move in the other direction. The fact is we don't know. It's speculation. We just we can't anticipate what an election would look like the other way. But the fundamental point is that what we're talking about here with the Electoral College is the issue of federalism. And if we are dismantling one aspect of federalism, then that same logic will work just as effectively on every other aspect of federalism contained in the Constitution. Gentlemen, we only have about a minute left, and there are so many other things I didn't get to and a lot of emails that we will post on our website. You know, what we're talking about would be a major change if we went away from the Electoral College. It would require a constitutional con uh, constitutional amendment, which would be two-thirds of the Congress and 38 states to approve that. Uh, Dr. Spiel, we only have 30 seconds left. Is that realistic? Uh, it's unlikely to happen. However, I think that there's a, a future election in which Republicans, when the, the Republican presidential candidate wins the national popular vote and loses in the Electoral College, there may actually be bipartisan support for making a change. Well, yeah, there has been Democrats so far that, in, at least in the last 16 years. Dr. Gelzo, about 10 seconds? At that point, then, the Democrats will be the ones talking about federalism, and Republicans will be the outsiders. It all depends on whose ox is being gored. So the answer really is no. The process will be just too cumbersome. <laughs> Dr. Alan Gelzo, Gettysburg College. Dr. Robert Spiel, Penn State. Erie, thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I want to talk about a program that is coming up uh, tonight on uh, WITF-TV. 43 million, that's the approximate number of people living in poverty in the United States. 43 million people who may not know where their next meal is coming from, how they'll pay their rent, or the, if they'll be able to see a doctor in the near future. Health Smart, The Poverty Effect airs tonight at 8 on WITF-TV. The program explores the link between poverty and poor health and what's being done to disentangle the two. I'm joined by Kira McGuire, the producer and host of Health Smart, The Poverty Effect. Kira, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. All right. I always ask you this whenever we're talking about uh, one of the Health Smart programs coming up. What did you learn during this program? Well, Scott, in producing this show, I learned that poverty and poor health are so it's, – it's a complicated relationship, and it's, it's difficult, uh, to put it lightly, to, to disentangle these two. Um, they're so intertwined that, uh, you know, poverty leads to poor health, poor health leads to poverty, and it just becomes a cycle. So um, some simple things that we might think about with good health, nutrition, and exercise – 
um, these two things are can be almost impossible for people living in poverty. Um, n- nutrition, um, people living in poverty often have a, a far distance to make it to a grocery store. Um, it might be hard for them to afford the healthier foods. You know, in, in these ways, it's kind of stacked, the cards are stacked against them for nutrition. Um, and for exercise, you know, um, lots of people that are living in poverty say that they have trouble finding a safe place for their kids to go out and play or to go for a walk. Um, so just these two simple ways that people of higher income think about staying healthy, um, people living in poverty find it to be a real struggle. So uh, I guess it really this show really points out um, how much it's difficult in, in the ways that it's so difficult to, to be healthy when you're living in poverty. One of the things that you do explore in the program is what's being done to find ways to or paths to uh, better health. Tell us about that. Right. Um, we, well, we talk about many different ways um, within the Health Smart Show, and, and we talk to people that are, that are struggling right now financially and getting their opinions on this as well. But um, one way is, um, you know, the Food Bank of Central Pennsylvania right now has invested a lot of money into being able to provide healthy foods. Um, we used to think about the canned products and, mm-hmm. and such um, when they do food drives, but now they're able to, um, to afford or they're able to provide healthier foods, milk, um, fresh produce, that kind of stuff to people in need. So that's one wonderful thing that's taking place. Um, In addition to that, um, experts tell us that there's no real magic pill to this situation. There's no easy fix, of course. Um, But they do say that it's it would be good for us to be able to get to the root causes of poverty. So a big one is education. Um, You know, um, people that grow up um, in low income families, they say, are five times more likely to drop out of high school than students from higher income families. Um, So getting to supporting kids in school, getting them to stay in school um, is one big push right now. Um, Also, moving to a system, a healthcare system where doctors are paid on outcomes rather than fee for service um, so that they can spend more time with their patients and sitting down, you know, um, asking their patients if they're going to be able to afford this medication. Many times patients don't feel comfortable saying that they won't be able to. Um, They'll accept the prescription and just won't have it filled. So the next time they come in, their blood pressure is still high. The doctor says, oh, let's increase the prescription. But um, really, they're they're just not having the prescription filled. Um, so just moving so that we can have more time with um, with patients to discuss these, um, these barriers that they might be facing towards better health. You always talk to people who are impacted by the issue which you are looking at on uh, HealthSmart. And you just mentioned that you do talk to some people who are living in poverty. What are some of the stories or a story that you heard that kind of stuck with you? You know, um, one woman that we spoke with, uh, a woman and her husband, um, she talks a lot about um, adverse childhood experiences. So um, when she was a child, she grew up in a poverty situation. And so she mentions that her her mom was working two jobs to try to support her and her sister, single mom. Um, and so they were left alone a lot. They saw things that, um, you know, maybe some kids don't experience. And, and she just mentioned that she feels that this plays a role or played a role in, in her childhood and, and the way she grew up. And now she's living in poverty. And, um, you know, there's a lot of research that supports that, um, saying that uh, these adverse childhood experiences um, can can lead to poverty. But, um, yeah, it, her story is, is moving and um, might give viewers a chance to view poverty in a way that they might not have expected. So, Kira, the program airs tonight. That's right. Mm-hmm. Tonight, at tonight at 8 on WITF-TV. It's Health Smart: The Poverty Effect, so be sure to tune in. Uh, Kira McGuire, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott.